So normally when I have to read the word, I usually have my hardbound Bible with me, but I had a senior event this morning, one of many, unfortunately. And so I'm going to use this little electronic doodad here and hoping that Murphy's Law doesn't prevail. Okay, we're going to be in Matthew 18. Want to turn your Bibles to that or your, <laughs> or your iPhones or your Androids? I do have 18, right, Phil? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto them, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become a little, as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one, one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him to have to, that a millstone be, were hanged around his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which has gone astray? And if so, be that he find it, Verily I say unto you, he rejoices more than that sheep than of the ninety-nine which were not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven, but one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother." But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two, one or, or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if ye neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as, as a heathen and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came, to Peter, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say unto thee, not unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take an account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will repay thee all. Oh boy, I lost my place. That's why I hate these little things. 28? 27? <laughs> 26. Now you guys are being unfair. 
You're taking advantage of my senior position here. All right, I'll do 26. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant came out, found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that, he had called him and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou didst, didst to me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on my fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his word was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto him, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one of his brothers their trespasses. This is what I get for reading the King James Version. <laughs> I should have stuck to the ESV. <laughs> okay, church, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and thank you for the opportunity to gather here in freedom and in your midst of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we just pray, Lord, again for our nation, God, that a great revival would come upon it. And we know a lot of it starts in the church and in our own hearts, Lord. So we just pray again that you would give us the hearts to minister to the unbelieved, the unsaved, and to spread the gospel, Lord. For it is not an easy thing for a lot of us to open up and to preach your word, but it is necessary for your word commands it, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that your hands will be upon Jackie this morning, Lord, that you especially touch the word as he delivers it to his people within this body here and out in TV land, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All the little ones are free. So let it be written. Someday we'll have to put a blooper reel on, on reading the Bible too, huh? <laughs> but it happens, just so you know. So as we look... Today, we're going to finish up Matthew 18. We're going to focus from 15 on, but we haven't left the context of the question, who's the greatest, and Jesus putting a little child in their midst and saying, unless you become as this little child. And if you remember from last week, I said it's not because there's some special ethical reality of little children, because if you've had any, you know that's not true. It is because that was the lowest class in society and this fits with the things jesus taught all the time he would say to people when you come to a dinner don't take the seat of honor and then have to be lowered sit in the lowest place that attitude of humility you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of god you need to learn to be the servant of all and being the servant of all is a station of humility and it will require you if you're going to continue in moving forward, walking with Jesus to learn how to navigate conflict. You think the disciples ever had conflict? How do we know they had conflict? Because uh, they're people. Uh, now, it's impossible to have conflict. Well, if you're a healthy individual, it's impossible for you to have conflict by yourself. But as soon as you add one more to the equation... You can have conflict. So we see, so we see, we need to learn to navigate it. And Jesus is going to talk about that. And this is an, a vital area for us within the church to one, repent of what we're doing, and two, do it right. So hope I step on everybody's toes today, but guarantee you we are guilty concerning how God has set up 
uh, our desire to navigate conflict in life. Matthew 18, 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. The very beginning, he says, that he doesn't say, <clears throat> well, you'll probably never have conflict because it'll be so rare because you're all Christians and you do everything right. But rather, he says, if your brother sins against you, so we're, we're not talking about a difference of opinion. Okay, conflict is not a, a difference of opinion. Your brother has sinned against you and it is your responsibility, the offended party, to go to your brother, not to pick up your phone and call all your sisters or brothers or friends and family and tell them, can you believe what so-and-so said to me? I can't believe that they would ever do this. And we build our little army of people who support our opinion about whatever the event is because we have become king. And we forgot that we're supposed to be like that little child. We have no station. Jesus is king. And because we love Jesus, we want to be right with our brothers and sisters. That's the motivation. Motivation is not for you to win an argument for you to be found right, for you to be, uh, um, what's the right word? For everyone to see all the struggle that you've had and, and honor you for it. Jesus' own mother asked for that. Lord, vindicate me now. Show everyone who you are. And all those stories they said about me when I was pregnant, out of wedlock, all the thing when I told them that I had been faithful to my husband, all the lies, all the gossip, Lord, vindicate me before them all. And Jesus said, what have I to do with you, woman? Mine hour is not yet. Because the center of Mary's story for a moment became Mary. And she lost the reality that the center of the story is Jesus. Not me. Him. What did John the Baptist say when his disciples come around him and said, John, th this guy down there that, that you declared to be the Lamb of God that take away the sin of the world, everybody's going after him. They're all leaving us. What did John say? I must decrease and he must increase. The story is about Jesus. Jesus said these words. They will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. A new commandment, Jesus said, I give unto you. John chapter 13. A new commandment I give unto you. What, that word new is, doesn't mean it's new like, oh, he just thought this one up. It means fresh. He's added something to an old commandment. The old commandment was love one another. What did Jesus add to it? As I have loved you. You love each other how I loved you. And this story, as we go through the section in the parable at the end, is all about <clears throat> learning to be like Christ and not our own stubborn, selfish selves. We are not the center of the story. So what are you to do? If a brother sins against you, you go to your brother. In chapter 5... Of Matthew, Jesus had already said, if you come to the altar to give your gift at the altar. So the picture is you're in the temple. You're bringing your sacrifice to the Lord. And as you're bringing your sacrifice to the Lord for the priest to take it and offer it on the altar, he says, and there you remember there's a problem between you and your brother. Jesus said, stop. Leave your offering there. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then worry about the ritual. Don't make the ritual take precedence over relationship. First, be reconciled to your brother. Now, the idea of this dealing with conflict that Jesus is going to lay out is it should be as few people involved as possible. It's going to grow, right? If this happens, then do this. If this happens, then do this. But the idea is we start with as few as possible. 
Because the Bible tells us, John would tell us, that love covers. Huh, imagine that. So it doesn't go around talking about it all. Love covers. Love wants to be reconciled. Love is willing to correct. Love is willing to rebuke if that's necessary. Love is willing to do those things. But the goal is reconciliation, not to be right or to have authority over another person. And I always know my pride's involved as soon as somebody says something to me and I get upset about it. Because why should I be upset? <coughs> I'm upset because you poked me in the pride. And my pride wants to poke you back. My pride doesn't like that. So there is a place for confrontation. It is scriptural. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now this is a pastoral duty for elders. This is not just our regular, our, our regular relationships. But the point behind it is, are we to rebuke if there's a problem? Do we need to confront things? Yes, we have to confront things. I hate confrontation. Who hates confrontation? Oh, y'all come to the right place. <laughs> I hate it. You ask anybody who knows me, they will tell you, Jackie hates confrontation. If I have to do confrontation, I'm cranky the whole time. I don't like it. It's super uncomfortable. But I'm not absolved of my responsibility to confront because I don't like it. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul's final words to Timothy, he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I learned this at a parenting conference because I was not a great parent. I'm in recovery now. My children are probably in recovery as well. Here's how I parented. I parented by waiting until I was mad and then I'd yell and scream until whatever behavior would stop. And I was watching, I was watching, you're going to be a parent like that, Isaac? Yeah, maybe. So, so what I, when I watched this parenting thing was, it was transformative to me. So, so here the, there's a father, he's sitting on the couch and he says, he's given an example of, from his life and his young son comes walking in the door. We've all had this happen. His young son comes in the door and as he comes in the door, he turns around, slam, slams the door. So dad says, son, don't slam the door. Oh, I'm sorry, dad. And he goes and sits down, starts doing whatever he's doing. And eventually he gets up to go back outside. And he gets up and he goes back outside. And as he walks outside, he goes, slam, slams the door. Now, by then, I would, my next phrase would have been something like, I'm going to beat you with that door. <laughs> but this father, he's, he reminded him again. He said, we need to learn the difference, the time for discipline and the time for instruction. Which means you have to be thinking about what you're doing, not reacting. You're responding. So the father said, son. And the boy said, oh, that's right, dad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And so he goes outside. He plays outside for a little while. Turns around, comes back in the house, opens the door, slams that door again. And his father says, <coughs> son. And the boy goes, oh, dad, I'm sorry. And then the father said this. I want you to open and close the door normally five times. So he'd open and close it, open and close it, open and close it, and go sit down. Then a little while he gets up and goes to go outside, and he opens the door, slams the door, and, his, and the father hollers, son. And the son goes, oh, and he opens the door up, and he says, open and close the door ten times. And he opened and closed the door ten times, he said, I taught my son not to slam the door. 
So we have to learn to interact with one another this way. What happens is we're angry with each other. And we jump to the point of anger much too fast because our pride is involved, because our, our, our self you know, becomes the center of the story. And now we just want to fight or talk about them or be unreasonable. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. He said, first become like that little child. This is the same chapter. He hasn't left. This is still the point he's making. Now he says, if your brother sins against you, go talk to your brother. You know, there's a lot of reasons. Maybe, maybe you were offended and he did not intend it. And it's simple. And it can be handled immediately. Before there's bitterness and all this other stuff, it can be dealt with. We can take care of it. But when we bring our rebuke or our exhortation or our reproof, before we bring whatever our issue is, we have to remember that the Bible challenges us to do that with caution. It says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's like that father instructing his son on how to close the door. Be gentle. Don't be rude. It, think about how you would like to be treated. Right? Think about how you would like to, because most of the time we're not running around trying to irritate one another. But he had just said, it is impossible in this world that offenses don't come, but woe to the one by whom offenses come. And if your brother sins against you, you need to correct him, but you need to correct him with gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, Galatians 6, 1 says, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? That you love one another. Learn to bear one another's burdens. This is not totally new. Leviticus 19, verse 16 says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So he says, don't slander, don't spread lies, don't spread gossip, don't spread your opinion. Just so you know, your perception does not equal truth. In our world currently today, I know everyone's trying to change the definition of truth, but still truth corresponds to reality, not perception. Perception of reality can be different, right? Have you ever seen two people see the same thing and think two different things? Yeah, our perception does not equal truth, but it's our perception, and sometimes we need to work through that, and we need to be willing to have a discussion so that we're able to do that. Jesus says, <laughs> don't stand up to take the life of your, of your neighbor. Don't go around slandering. Verse 17, Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Don't you hate your brother, he said, you talk to him. Reason with him. The relationship is more important than whatever the other thing is. And sometimes that means you have to be uncomfortable. But that's how it is. We are called to be uncomfortable. Why should you reason frankly with your neighbor? Lest you incur sin because of him. You, not, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of the sons of your people. So to Israel, it's like, you don't get to bear grudge or be bitter against anybody who's part of your family. In the church, we are family. That's why we use the phrase brother and sister. So by application, we can say, Leviticus is saying, you don't have a right to bear grudge against a brother or sister. You don't have a right. And the Lord says you should reason frankly with your neighbor so that you do not incur sin because of your bitterness. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Who's in charge? Ah, the Lord. He gets to decide, right? 
Now, this phrase says, if he listens to you. In the Greek, there are four class conditions of the word if. This one, I won't bore you. This one means maybe he'll listen, maybe he won't. Anybody experience that? Does everybody always listen to your quality reasoning? <laughs> right? So maybe he'll listen, maybe he won't. Maybe he will not be, uh, he will not respond favorably. But if he does, it's over. You gained your brother and we're done. Okay, but we know in real life sometimes resistance occurs. It goes on in verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The scripture is rife with this example. In terms of judgment, you cannot bring a charge against an elder without two or three witnesses. Do you guys know what two or three witnesses are? Okay, two or three witnesses are not people that you've called and told them what happened. That's not two or three witnesses. That's two or three busybodies. It's not the same thing. Are you with me? Bringing two or three witnesses means it has been witnessed. Whatever the thing is was witnessed by two or three other people. And then they can say, no, really, this happened. I know, I know you feel like this didn't happen, but really it did. Let me, let me express how that did. You know, there's a lot of ways we may try to <clears throat> establish the viability of one. I'm just telling you what God says. Two or three witnesses. What if I don't have two or three witnesses? Then bear with the, the burdens of your brother. Forgive him his wrong <clears throat> and move on. In order to get to the second part, you have to have two or three eyewitnesses, not two or three people you told. Not two or three people who can say, you know, I was talking to Susie the other day and I heard that that's not a witness. That's gossip. It's a sin. Not two, it's always men who say that. <coughs> oh, there we go. Way to go, ladies. So the, my, point, my point being that we want to have two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, it progresses. Tell the church. Now, Jesus never defines what that means. So depending on what church you're in, they do church discipline a lot of different ways. Maybe they'll bring it up before the whole body of the church. Maybe they'll bring it up before the, the leadership of the church. Jesus doesn't define what he means, and he doesn't give us a dissertation on what the church is supposed to look like. He just says we progress from two or three <coughs> to the church. And the profession before the church is stop assuming this is a brother. That's the profession. Treat him as a heathen or a tax collector. Just means, I don't know if that dude's saved. And you have a different set of parameters when you're dealing with the unsaved compared to your brother. Do you understand? So if you say, well, I'm not sure that person's saved, then, then you are able to be relinquished uh, in that case. But you have to have Two or three witnesses, the second part, and then the church for part three, assuming that you've gone through those things and they would not respond. Jesus doesn't say, here's how your grievances are aired before the church. He doesn't teach anything about church structure. We're going to get that later on from Paul. Second Thessalonians kind of puts the idea together. Second Thessalonians, Paul writes in chapter three, verse 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. So it's a picture of some form of church discipline, right? Treat him as an unbeliever, but listen to what he says in the, in the next phrase, but do not regard him as an enemy. That's not your enemy. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter six, we do not war against flesh and blood. The enemy is not the person that you're angry with or upset with. That's not the enemy. And then Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, don't regard him as an enemy, <coughs> excuse me, but rather warn him as a brother. So the goal 
scriptural goal of conflict in, in, in um, relationships is restoration. That's the goal. To see restoration. To renew relationships. To see God accomplish this work. Now, in this context, we move on to verse 18. In verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will also be loosed in heaven. Now, we have misused this verse to accomplish a bazillion things. So just so we can be clear, you do not control what happens in heaven. God does. A better way to have translated this so that it would be clearer to those who read this is not a direct translation. A better way to translate it would have been, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Where do we get the groundwork for what is, is good and what isn't good? We don't make that up ourselves. How do we do church discipline? We follow what God's word has laid out and we're obedient to what God's word says. So when we enact that kind of discipline, we're doing, we're following what Jesus Christ has laid out. It's not that we all get together and make up our minds to do something and then God has to do it. That's not how this works. Ever. You can't find a single example of that. But what we will see, what we do see, is that what Jesus Christ has declared is to be done here. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, what did they say? Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Whose will is it? Who's king? God is king. He has the authority. This is what this text is talking about. We keep it in its context. We're dealing with how do we deal with conflict. So the things... When we have to enact this, this conflict resolution, we are being obedient to what God's word says. We're not being led by popular opinion. We don't take a vote and the most popular thing says, yep, we're going to throw this guy out of church and so we do. That's not how this works. We follow the guidelines that God's word has laid out. He's continuing in that same discussion in verse 19. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is not talking in the context about prayer. And if we agree in prayer, two guys have the same prayer. We both are praying desperately that we receive a new Mercedes. So we'll get one because we are in agreement in prayer. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about two or three witnesses who have come together, <clears throat> made a judgment based on what God's word says. And God will do that they are, God is confirming what they are doing because they are unified together according to God's word. Where two or three of you are gathered, there I am in your midst. He's here if there's nobody here. He's here if you're here by yourself. But in judgment where two or three witnesses come together, God will confirm the judgment because we're following in obedience to his word. God will confirm what is being done. We follow what God's word is declaring. We have a, 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 an example of this in the gospel of John. It's a different author, but <clears throat> similarly, John says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. <clears throat> that does not mean I have authority on earth to forgive or withhold. It means I have authority on earth to proclaim what Jesus Christ has forgiven and to proclaim what he hasn't. Woe to me to tell someone who's coming to for, for forgiveness to say, you can't be forgiven, brother, because I think this, 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 and the other. No, what is our role? Our role is to proclaim what Jesus Christ has done. It's not about you and me. It's about him. He's the king. Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear on those sins that can be forgiven. Yes? 
So we don't want to stand in opposition to the declared word of God. The word of God is the final arbiter in all cases of discussion about what ought be done and what ought not be done. And we are committed as believers and followers of Jesus Christ to walk in obedience to what his word says. Amen? So we want to be obedient to what God's word is challenging us to and where God is calling us. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I am with them. In regard to the action taken to try to reconcile believers to one another, to, to working through this conflict, to taking two or three witnesses and all of this, you follow what I have laid out and I am with you in the middle of it all. He is with us. You don't have to be afraid, but you do have to do it God's way. So do yourself a favor. Stop picking up the phone and telling everybody else. And if you are offended at your brother for something, you have a conversation with them, just the two of you. And where two or three are gathered, the Lord says, I will be with you to bring the reconciliation that God is laying out for us. So Peter is listening and he's tracking and we're in context, right? So Peter says, well then, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? So Peter knows what we're talking about, right? Anybody ever been offended by a brother more than once? Yes, you have, right? Some of you have been offended by me more than once. Did you say amen? <laughs> My wife wanted some input there. So when, what do we do about that? Okay, so we're supposed to work this conflict. Think through with me. Who's the greatest? The greatest is like the child. The child who sets aside the ability to try to climb the ladder and be the most powerful person in the room, but rather walks in humility. And in that humility, we're going to resolve conflict by finding reconciliation God's way between uh, brethren. And then Peter, the natural progression, Peter says, how many times? How many times do we have to do it? How many times? And he goes way out on a limb. As many as seven? I know we in conversation have said, I could never forgive somebody for that. Or maybe I'll forgive them once, but I'll never forgive them if they did it again. How many times? As many as seven times shall I forgive my brother? And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but now look, you get another chance to talk about textual critical issues. What? Some of your Bibles say 77 times. Some of your Bibles say 70 times seven. Why is that? Because there is nuance within language. Things don't translate word for word. So it could be either way. Now the end result is unchanged. I think what Jesus is saying is 70 times 7. And I'll tell you why. Because 70 times 7 is 490. And that is an example from the Old Testament. When the nation of Israel came into the promised land, they were required every seven years to give land a Sabbath. So every seven years, you did not work the land. You let the, the land go fallow. And for 490 years, they did not do it. So when Israel goes into captivity to Babylon... And Jeremiah and Daniel are curious, how long are we here? The Lord says, you will be in captivity for 70 years because you did not give the land its rest for 490 years. 
Now, whether it's 77 or 490, the end result is the same. What is he telling us? How long ought you to forgive your brother? Well, if I take the direct example from the Old Testament, you shall forgive him for 490 years, which ought to cover everybody in this room for a lifetime. <laughs> right? Or if I take 77, what's he saying when he says 77? Because the, the general life expectancy in the day was 70 years. 70 years are given to man. So he goes seven years past that. Beyond your life. Longer than your life. How long should I forgive my brother? Longer than your life. Longer than you live. Longer than the example of God forgiving the nation of Israel. The book of Proverbs tells us this. A righteous man falls seven times a day. Let's say it like this. A righteous man fails seven times in the exact same way. But he rises again. It's not about how many times do I have to forgive. It's about not ever giving up. Always having hope that God is able to affect the change that we desire. But remember, you're not the chief in the story. Who's the chief in the story? Jesus is. Who's the king? Jesus is. What's he asking us to do? To forgive repeated offenses. We want to understand that a little clearer. Let's listen to the gospel of Luke. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, correct him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Sorry. And those are red letters. Not that they carry any more weight than the black ones, but sometimes people like to know that. These are, these are Jesus' words. He's saying, you must forgive him. We see this 77 times, 70 times 7, as a direct um, refutation, if you will, of Genesis 4.24. <laughs> if you remember Genesis, there's a guy in Genesis named Lamech. And Lamech says... Well, if Cain, the revenge for Cain was seven times, the revenge that I bring will be 70 times seven. And Jesus reverses that and says, it's not about getting revenge or getting what's due you or any of those things. It's about forgiving one another. What's going on in this chapter? How are we the greatest? All of a sudden, maybe as you work your way through the concepts, you start saying, maybe I don't want to be the greatest. Maybe 100th best. I don't know. But the, what the Lord is requiring, if you want to be the greatest, this is what that looks like. Let me ask you a question. In the example of God, are your offenses toward him worse than your neighbors toward you? And has he forgiven you? You know where we're going next. There's a parable. All of these things are building one upon the other upon the other. And so we have next, the very next thing Jesus does, he makes this statement and then he lays out a very traditional parable in three acts. There are three acts to this parable. And as he's laying out these acts, it begins in act one. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be, be, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, anytime a rabbi did it, there was a general formula that followed. The king is God. The servants are his people. You know, you go through. This is not difficult understanding, right? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So when he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. 
Now look, we have to understand 10,000 talents is a debt that could not even be reckoned in their time. It is, this is a huge, 10,000 was the highest number that you could speak in Greek. 10,000 talents was enormous. Some people say several million. Some say a trillion dollars. The talent was the highest known denomination of currency in the entire Roman Empire, and 10,000 was the highest reckoning of counting in Greek. So he's talking about a, a huge debt that is owed. And the point is, he can't pay it. He cannot pay this debt. Now, he's, gonna, he's going to say he can. Look, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the idea is I'm going to recoup something. He's not going to get 10,000 talents. He's never going to see that money, but this was how justice would have been carried out. <laughs> They'd all get sold into slavery. He recouped some money, and the judgment is a life sentence. So the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now the king knows you can't pay this debt. You don't have enough time to live. In the economy of the day, even if you did every, gave me every penny you ever earned, you're not getting to this number. But the scripture says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Now, if we look at this, Act 1, this is how everyone comes to salvation through the Lord. You owe a debt to God you can't pay. You can't pay it. But if you, like Jesus said and that tax collector so long ago, beat your breast on your knees before God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, Jesus says that man left justified, his debt forgiven. Your debt will be forgiven you. So we see Jesus, the first act, showing the forgiveness of God over people. Sheer grace is at work. So nothing this man can do. He took pity. That phrase is the same word for the word compassion in Scripture every time Jesus looked at the crowds. He took compassion upon them. He took pity. So we move into Act 2. The servant is forgiven. Man, that's a great day, right? Celebrations ensue. So in Act 2, he begins... But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now we're using a different form. It's not the highest form of money. It's one of the smaller. It's still a substantial sum, but it's nowhere near the debt owed previously. He seized him and he began to choke him and he said, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Same words, same response. Now we see one of the servants who had been forgiven by the king refusing forgiveness to another. He used the same words, a lesser debt is owed, because let's face it, it doesn't matter what happens between people, your offense to God is greater. So he says, I will. I, he refused to forgive him and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, again, Prison in those days, probably not like prison today. But they have this, this reality. If I put you in prison and you have to pay me a hundred denarii, you are going to sit in prison until you die. 
Because nobody in prison is paying you a thing. So when we withhold forgiveness from others, we're condemning. We're taking the seat of the king. But you don't have the authority of the king. That's his job. That's not our job. That's not our place. So the act two ends with this phrase. So his fellow servants saw what took place. And they were greatly distressed and reported to their master all that had been done. This man made a, a conscious decision to harden his heart and withhold forgiveness, withhold reconciliation, withhold the continuance of a relationship with his brother, someone from the same country as he, just another Jew in the story, another another part of the of the nation of Israel. And Leviticus has already told us, you're not supposed to do that. And so he, he's withholding that. He's hardened his heart. And the other servants are outraged and they go to the king. So we enter into act three. Then the master summoned him. Will there be a day where the master will summon his servants? And on the day when the master summons his servants, will there be a reckoning? Multiple times Jesus tells stories like this. There will be a day we give reckoning to God. When you're giving your reckoning to God, what do you want that judgment to be? That's usually what we want to hear, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. But to be a good and faithful servant, you have to be good and faithful Right? This is not an automatic. This is not the the, reckon, the the reckoning that we give to God is not like when you play T ball today and everybody gets a trophy. <clears throat> Nobody keeps score. God just automatically gonna tell you, well done. The Bible also talks about people who make it to heaven and smell like smoke. Right? That they're saved from the fire. They still smell a little smoky when they get in. The Bible talks about having all your rewards burned up and having nothing to present before the king for what he has done for you. I don't know what that shame is like, but I'm not, I don't want that, right? The reason he tells us these stories is so we can say, what do I, how do I want this to look? And then what do I do to make that happen? We all do that in real life, don't we? You have goals for your life, uh, achievements in your job, Places you want to be, maybe financially or security-wise. And so you set out those goals and you figure out how to reach them. It ought not be any different for our obedience to the king. What does my obedience to the king look like? He wants me to be like this. So I need to figure out how to get there. And sometimes <clears throat> it might be annoying things. There's, I have to do annoying things all the time. I don't want to do any of them. I'm, I am uh, pursuing membership in, a, in an MC, which uh, basically, I know, nobody's going to understand this, so just turn off for a minute, and I won't waste your time very long. Some people will be like, who cares? What's that? What's that? It's all dumb. I know it's dumb. It's how I'm broken, so it is my, I like it. You don't have to like it. But as a prospect in the MC, there are things I have to do. Motorcycle club. I'm sorry. As a prospect in a motorcycle club, there are things. Just stay with me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to matter in a second. There are things I have to do that I think are dumb. But because I want entrance into the motorcycle club, I do the things required to have entrance. And I don't 
whine about them because then they get worse. <laughs> so what I do is I say, this is how this works. This is, look, I don't have to be in it. Nobody's forcing anybody to do anything, right? Are you forced to be part of God's family? No. But if you're entering the family of God, there are things you need to do. And we need to stop making excuses for why we're not going to do them. And we need to say, I, I may not like it all, but this is something I need to do. I need to learn to be forgiving. The one it sets free is not the one you have forgiven. The one that sets free is you. You will have been set free. So the master brings him and says, you wicked servant. There's a reckoning. You wicked servant. Did not I forgive you of more? <coughs> Who are you to withhold forgiveness to another? Now make that personal. I don't know what they've done. I'm sure it's horrible. But who are you to withhold forgiveness if you have received forgiveness? For to whom much is given, we have received. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? <clears throat> the parable doesn't have a million different points. It has one. Right? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay every debt. Now, his debt is bigger, but he's got the same ability to pay it as the other guy. He can't. Now, we look at this and we say, well, there's probably a lot of things we could take from this. There's probably, there's probably a lot of lessons here. But let's just read verse 35 before we make up any of our own mind. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. One of the guys who were present for this conversation, his name's John. And one of the things John said is if you do not love your brother, the love of God is not in you. If you don't love your brother, if you're unwilling to, to pursue what God's word is directing us to do, if you look across and you, and you have such hate or whatever for your brother, John wants you to know you don't belong to God. Anybody can say any kind of words they want to say. But according to Romans chapter 5, the love of God is poured into the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit. So if God's love is poured into your heart, you will not withhold that love from your brother. So if you don't have it, you probably need to reconcile that reality. So that you have the love that God has given you. So also my heavenly father, Jesus speaking, so also God the father will do to everyone who will not forgive their brother. How many times I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? Is there a limit? So will my father in heaven do to those who will not forgive their brother. So we are to respond what is the standard of God's forgiveness? Matthew 6, verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Did you hear that really big little word at the beginning of the sentence? Let me change it like, to say it like this. Your Father in heaven will forgive you the way you forgive others. You ever think about it like that? Verse 15 says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. You do not have the right to hold 
you only have the right to relinquish it to God. There have been relationships in my life where I didn't know what to do or how to do it, so I, I'm just crying out to God, and I say, God, you, you take it. I, I can't take this anymore. I forgive. I relinquish the right to judge my brother, my sister, my family. I relinquish the right to judge them. I give it to you, for you are a holy and righteous judge, and I will be free. And you are free. You are free from your own anger and bitterness. In Ephesians 4.31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's a lot of alls. Right? All bitterness. Oh, I'm just a little bitter about, you ever said that? How much bitterness are you supposed to put away? All bitterness. How much wrath? All wrath. The wrath of man will never accomplish the righteousness of God. How much anger? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Clamor and slander is gossiping about others. How much of that should we lay down? Malice is hoping that bad things happen to other people. All. Let it all go. And fill it with what? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility like the child in the midst, meekness, Patience. How long do I have to be patient? When do I get to not be patient anymore? Look, listen, I told you Mary wanted vindication. Mary wanted the voices of all those people who ever gossiped about her to be silenced. And Jesus said, no, it's not time for that. And I know some of us are dealing with difficult relationships and difficult things, and we're tired of being patient, and we want justice, and we want it to all be worked out now. But the Lord is saying through his word that we as followers of his word promise to be obedient to, that we're to put on humility, meekness, and patience, kindness, and compassion, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And over all of this, put on love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. This is not a new concept. This is not, these are not hard verses to find. They just go against our grain. We don't want to do it. So what do we see here in chapter 18? Three themes come out. One, God's boundless grace. He gives us things we do not deserve. The second thing, how dumb it would be to spurn that. Oh, we want to receive that grace. And... The frightful fate awaiting those who are unforgiving. Here Jesus sees no incongruity in what's going on in the actions of the Father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly. Neither should we. He is God. He is a God of compassion and mercy. He is a God willing to forgive, but he will not accept those devoid of compassion and mercy. That's an effect he empowers us to overcome. 
I want to walk in love with my brothers. I want to walk in love with my church family, with those who claim the name of Christ. Look, I know we don't all agree. We, we can't even all agree in this room. But I choose to love you whether we agree or not. And I think we have a common direction that we're moving toward Christ Jesus, the upward call, becoming more like him. But we all need to make that decision. So we're going to pray in a moment. We're going to have elders and, and deacons, people to pray with you around the room. But I would encourage you, don't just be like the book of James describes, a man who looks at his face in the mirror and then turns away and forgets what he saw there. The Spirit of God is convicting you of things and you need to confess them in prayer with the members of your family gathered here today and be encouraged that we can be set free and we can experience the power of God moving in the body of Christ today. But we can't expect that if we regard iniquity in our heart. We don't get to hold on to our sin and Jesus at the same time. One needs let go. The other needs held on to. You ought to know which was which. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we come to you this moment, Lord, just seeking the movement of your spirit in the hearts of men and women. Lord, I pray, God, that your word has found fruitful soil to grow, to call, to beckon uh, the body of Christ gathered here at Calvary Chapel Buell to get their hearts made right. Lord, we have opportunity right now to do that. We gather together on a day of the Lord so that we might draw near to him and near to one another. We draw together to be encouraged and exhorted and sometimes rebuked and reproved. But we gather together so that we might be encouraged for the days that come. So, God, I pray that we would walk in obedience to what you're asking of us here. I don't know that there will be a one who stands before Jesus Christ for whom he will declare you were too forgiving. But I do know it's possible to be too far the other way. Lord, I pray that you would restore relationships in this building that are broken. I pray, Lord, that you would work on the hearts of those who have hardened their hearts, being obedient to what God's calling to. Pray, Lord, you would do a perfect work. So we take these moments to pray and to seek your face and to leave this place uh, filled with the power of your Holy Spirit to be the men and women you're calling us to be. For we will fall seven times, but every time we fall, we shall repent and be forgiven. And Lord, we ask that you would bless this time as we seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen.